All right, church, if you would turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy. Uh, we're going to look today at the remainder of 2 Timothy chapter 1. Last week, we started working our way through verses 8 through 18. We covered the, the first few verses of this passage, and today we're going to cover the remainder of it, going all the way to the end of chapter 1. So this is sort of a two-part sermon. This is part two of a sermon uh, we started last week. So keep that in mind as we read our text together. Uh, we'll read in chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Paul says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not, was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This is the word of the Lord. In a fallen world, there are two kinds of suffering. Two distinct kinds of suffering. The first kind is suffering that happens to you. This is the kind of suffering that touches all of us simply because of the fact that we exist in a world where suffering is everywhere. It's everywhere you look. You walk down the street, it's evidence of suffering. This is unavoidable, it's inescapable. There's a second kind of suffering, though. And it's not suffering that only happens to you. Rather, it's a kind of suffering that you willingly enter into because you are compelled by some sort of higher interest. It's not that you desire the suffering itself. Rather, you want the thing that, the, that, that may require you to suffer. 
You might call this type of suffering convictional suffering. After national tragedies like Pearl Harbor or 9-11, the rates of U.S. military enlistments skyrocketed. Why? Well, it's quite simple. It's because those tragedies reminded people that the ideals of the United States are worth defending and suffering for, and for some, they're even worth dying for. One specific example of this is the story of Pat Tillman. If you know who Pat Tillman is, you know that around the turn of the millennium, he was an up-and-coming defensive star in the NFL. He played safety for the Arizona Cardinals. But in the months following 9-11, Tillman gave up his meteoric career as a professional athlete to serve his country because he believed it was worth the sacrifice. And it cost him his life. He was killed in combat because he was willing to enter into convictional suffering. This letter that we're studying today mentions suffering as one of its central themes. Paul is clear that he is experiencing affliction. He is suffering, and not just in a general way. Now, he is, he is in a season of convictional suffering. Just look back at verses 11 and 12. Paul tells us that for the gospel, he was appointed to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. He says this is why he suffered. It's why he is in prison. It's why he is awaiting death by execution. Paul does not suffer because he happens to like it. He's not a sadistic person. Rather, he suffers because he's convicted that the truth of the gospel is worth any sacrifice. He, he believes that the gospel is true. He treasures the gospel supremely. He wants to make the gospel known by any means necessary, even if it means paying the ultimate price. This is why Paul can say he's not ashamed of his suffering. His imprisonment is not a source of disgrace for him. Paul is not embarrassed by this, but instead he suffers boldly. He suffers with confidence and he can suffer this way because of who he knows. He says he knows the Lord. That's verse 12. He writes, I know whom I have believed. Paul says this because he understood that being a Christian is not only a matter of what you know. Of course, what you know is crucially important, right? Christians should pursue a deep knowledge of scripture and doctrine. Those things really matter. They matter more than I can possibly say. But being a Christian is also a matter of who you know. So in your exploration of scripture, in your study of theology, be careful that you do not miss the point. These things are meant to lead you toward prayer. They're meant to lead you toward worship and toward communion with the living God. Being a Christian is most fundamentally about knowing the one whom you have believed. The Apostle Paul is not just a, a, a theological genius. 
course, he is that. But more importantly, he was a friend of Jesus Christ. He lived a life of close communion with the Lord. And so he can say, I am not ashamed to suffer. But there's another reason that Paul is not ashamed. He says, I'm convinced that the Jesus I know and believe is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. As Christians, we believe that there is coming a day of final judgment. There is a future time where Christ will judge the living and the dead. That's what Paul is referring to when he talks about the day. It's the great day of the Lord that was foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament. And Paul is firmly convinced that on that great day, the truth of the gospel will prevail. It will remain. I believe that that's what Paul is alluding to here. When he talks about what has been entrusted to him, he is talking about the message of the gospel, that that the true gospel will not be ultimately corrupted. It will not diminish in its power. It will not fall into obscurity. Rather, it will continue to be preached and believed and obeyed by the power of God. Paul says that Jesus Christ will see to it that that happens. He will guard his great gospel until the very end. And this is significant for us today as as hearers of the word. Because remember, remember the big idea from last week. Remember what we talked about. We talked about how everything we need is found in this gospel. Everything we need is found in the gospel. And if that's true, if that is indeed the case, then we can suffer boldly for the name of Jesus. That's the one thing I want to impress upon you as we look at this text. Because here's the thing. The gospel that gathers us today is the same gospel that sustained Paul in his sufferings. Even though there's 2,000 years worth of chronological distance between us and the writing of this letter, the truth of the gospel still remains. So we see Paul was right. He, he, he was right about that. The gospel is being guarded. It is still here with us today, bringing us together as the people of God so that we can worship at the feet of Christ. And as we gather around the gospel today, let's not forget that it has the power to sustain us. In every season of life, In every circumstance we may face, the gospel is enough. So should the time come for us to suffer, we will find no lack in the gospel. No, it is an infinite storehouse of grace and blessing guarded by Christ. So that from it, we can know our every need will be met. I started looking at this last week. If you were here, you may remember we looked at two truths about the gospel that will sustain joy, confidence, and hope in the midst of suffering. The first truth we looked at was God's predestining grace. Our salvation in Christ originated before the ages began. It is from before the foundation of the world when God determined that he would save us by his grace. Then we looked at the truth that the gospel is a historically 
manifested reality. Right? The God who predestined us for salvation before all time. This same God came down from heaven. He entered into time and history as a man. He died on the cross. He rose again from the grave in order that he might abolish death and give us the hope of eternal life. And so with those two truths in mind, we're going to keep moving along in chapter 1. And we're going to look at two more truths about the gospel that we declare and display together. The next of these truths is found starting in verse 13, where Paul tells Timothy to, to follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Then verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who indwells us, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. So based on these two verses, the third truth we're looking at is the truth that the gospel is a precious stewardship. It's a precious stewardship. It is a, a treasure of unimaginable worth and value entrusted to us by our God. You know, I can remember when Aaron and I were earlier on in our marriage and we first started having children whenever we would travel. Like whenever we would go on a trip and we were driving somewhere out of state, we'd have all our, our babies and our toddlers strapped into their little car seat carrier things. And, and my mother-in-law would always text me right before we left. And she would say these words, dear son-in-law, remember, you have precious cargo. Like without fail, that, that would show up on a little notification on my phone to remind me that my family, my wife and my children are a tremendous stewardship, and I should drive carefully, which I always do. If I'm known for anything, it's for my dog-like obedience to traffic laws. And I can say that because my wife and children are not in the room, and so I can get away with bending the truth a little bit. <laughs> I heard the L word. <laughs> Listen, as Christians, we travel with precious cargo. We have a precious stewardship from God. He, he has entrusted to us his glorious gospel, his good deposit. And, and what Paul is getting at with this is so significant because one of the things that's in the background as he's saying this to Timothy is his awareness of just how dangerous it is to have this, this good deposit in our possession. You know, a, a little over a week ago, I rewatched The Fellowship of the Ring, where Frodo Baggins possesses the ring of great power forged in the fires of Morador, right? One ring to rule them all. And as Frodo serves as ring bearer, there are threats coming to him constantly from every direction, right? There's the Black Riders, there, there are the Orcs, there's the Eye of Sauron. It seems like the fellowship is constantly finding itself surrounded by enemies, and yet the ring is not even safe within the fellowship, right? Because, because Boromir at one point is overtaken with, with desire for the, the, the ring and its power, and so even he becomes a, a threat to Frodo. So when you have a, a tremendous 
Stewardship, when you have a deposit that you are carrying, which is truly precious, one thing that happens is you attract attention from hostile actors. You, you find yourself threatened and in danger. After all, we have an enemy who scripture tells us is prowling like a roaring lion, seeking someone that he may devour. Jesus even said this to the apostle Peter. He said, Peter, Satan desires to have you so that he may sift you as wheat. Those who bear the precious stewardship of the gospel will find themselves in the crosshairs of Satan and his demons. But not only that, our precious stewardship will also put us at odds with the unbelieving world. Because this world is under the influence of the evil one. Just listen to what it says in 1 John 5.19. It says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Friends, that's why persecution exists. That's why there's so much hostility and opposition to the gospel around the globe. It's because as Christians, we bear the good deposit in the midst of a present evil age. So the church will often find itself facing threats from multiple directions. Which if you think about it, can be a daunting prospect. Because no one likes to suffer. Right? No one in their right mind relishes the thought of getting into trouble. No one desires to end up where Paul ended up. We would rather be spared from that hostility and that persecution because those things, frankly, are uncomfortable. It stinks to be attacked. Right? It, it, it's painful. I don't know about you, but I want people to like me. And so, if I could, I'd rather avoid. What Paul is, is saying here, but I also know this, I can't avoid it. I can't sidestep it. I, I can't get around it. Because being faithful to the gospel will by default put you at odds with the world. Having this precious stewardship is a dangerous thing. Mr. Frodo, it's dangerous business walking out your front door. And so there may come a time where convictional suffering becomes a reality for us, just as it did for Paul. Which is why he begins in verse 14 with four very important words. Look at what those words are. By the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. This precious stewardship we have, it is not something that we bear alone. We do not guard this good deposit by our own strength or ingenuity. Now, if God calls us to do hard things, if he calls us to suffer, if he calls us to this great stewardship, guess what? He won't leave us hanging. Right? He, he's given us his spirit as a guarantee. We just, just look at the text. Paul gives a command in verse 13. Follow the pattern of sound words and faith and love. Paul is telling Timothy, teach what you have been taught. Use the words that I have told you to use and do it with faith and with love. And then Paul reminds Timothy of where faith and love come from. In verse 13, he says they are found in Christ. And then in verse 14, he says that we receive them 
by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 15, the world is going to hate you because it hates me and you belong to me. Therefore, the world will treat you in the exact same way that it has treated me. But then Jesus tells his disciples something else. He says, I will send you a helper who is from the Father. And this helper will bear witness to your hearts concerning all that I have spoken so that you will believe in my name and so that you will abide in my love. So as long as we have this Holy Spirit living within us, as long as we have this helper from the Father and the Son, we have the power to walk obediently in faith and in love, even when times are tough. It is only through the Spirit that we can enter into the dangerous mission of guarding the good deposit. Friends, God does not give us this great stewardship without providing the power we will need in order to be faithful with it. But he doesn't just give us power. I believe there's also a promise for us in this passage. Paul includes a promise that our mission will ultimately prove successful. And he believed it with all of his heart. Just look back at at verse 12. There's a connection, I believe, between verse, verse 12 and verse 14. And that connection is that Paul only tells Timothy to guard the the good deposit after telling him that Christ will guard it, right? In other words, before Paul gives to Timothy the imperative, the command to guard the good deposit, he reminds him that the the deposit will be guarded. It will be guarded. He, He wants Timothy to realize it's not all up to us. Right? It's not entirely on our shoulders to see to it that the gospel moves forward. No, instead, we have the promise of God. And we have his power. And that's what makes this precious stewardship that we've received a matter of good news. Even when trouble comes our way, even if we must share in suffering. And yet, as Paul experienced, there are people who will cut and run at the first sign of trouble. There's an ancient fable known as the two travelers and the bear. It's from Aesop's fables. And the fable goes, the two men were traveling together through a forest when suddenly a huge bear came at them. One of the men, thinking only of his own safety, climbed a tree. The other man, unable to fight the bear by himself, fell on the ground and remained still as if he were dead. He did this, of course, because he had heard that a bear will not touch a dead body. Which must have been true, because the bear sniffed at the man's head for a moment. And then the bear, seeming to be satisfied that the man was dead, walked away. The other man in the tree climbed down and said to his friend, it looked like the bear whispered something in your ear. What was it that he told you? Dusting himself off and picking himself up from the ground, the man answered, 
He said it was not at all wise to keep company with a fellow who would desert his friend in a moment of danger. Paul knew exactly what that was like. He knew what it was like to be deserted in a moment of danger because he had been abandoned by those he thought were his friends. And he even names two of these so-called friends in verse 15. He calls out Phygelus and Hermogenes. But then in, in verse 16, he moves on immediately to Onesiphorus. And, and I think this is really telling. It's really instructive because it just goes to show how much Paul loved people. One commentator says that the book of 2 Timothy shows that Paul had an immense capacity for friendship. Even though he had been deserted by most of his friends, Paul was still quick to love others. He showed zero hesitation, zero reservation when it came to embracing his brothers and sisters in the faith. And we really see his affection for Onesiphorus in particular in these verses. Paul is overflowing with love and honor for this man. And it's not hard to see why, because just look, Onesiphorus was a source of refreshment for Paul. Onesiphorus was not embarrassed of Paul. He was, he was proud to call Paul his friend. In fact, Onesiphorus loved Paul so much that he even traveled to see Paul in prison. He traveled from Ephesus to Rome, a long journey to visit Paul in his affliction. He was one of the few people left in Paul's life who was willing to show up. And I'd say this is, this is a great lesson for us. The lesson is that there is power in simply showing up for others. Showing up in other people's lives. I mean, you guys all know this, right? You know that when you're hurting, when you are discouraged, when you have a dire need that you are facing, when someone shows up in your life in that moment, man, it's a lifeline. Right? It, it, it serves to remind you, hey, I'm not alone in this. I'm not by myself here. God has placed people. He has, he has placed faithful people in my life who will express his love and his care toward me. I mean, over the past couple of years, so many of you guys have been this exact thing for me and my family. You've shown up for us in a big way. You, you, you've shown up in our lives and we have experienced the gospel through you, through your love and your care that you express to us in a tangible way. And we've experienced the gospel through that, just like Paul did. Through the love and the care of Onesiphorus, which is why Paul desired for him and, and I desire for Emmaus as well, the fourth and final truth we're going to look at in this passage. Remember, so far, we've looked at the gospel's predestining grace. We've looked at how it was historically manifested. We've considered how it is a precious stewardship entrusted to us by God. And now, we're going to examine how the gospel promises to us a merciful reward. A merciful reward. Above all else, that is what Paul wanted for his friends. 
It was his one wish for Onesiphorus. I mean, Paul even says it twice in just a handful of verses. He says it in verse 16, and then he basically repeats himself in verse 18. Like, in both of of these verses, he inserts a benediction for Onesiphorus. Paul says, may the Lord grant him mercy. May the Lord grant his household mercy. When the final day arrives, Paul says, and the good deposit has been faithfully guarded down through the ages, he says, I long for my good friend, Onesiphorus, to be standing among those to whom God is richly merciful. And all these years later, as we read the words of Paul in these verses, it leaves us with one lingering question. Did it happen? Right? Did Paul's wish for his friend come true? Did Onesiphorus receive his merciful reward? I'll let Jesus answer the question for us. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That tells us everything we need to know about the eternal state of Paul's dear friend. It tells us the kind of reward that Onesiphorus received from Jesus Christ. But not only that, it's also instructive for us because it gives us greater motivation, greater incentive for our reward in Christ. You see, as Christians, we should be known for our mercy. When people think of Emmaus Church, And I wonder what word it is that comes to mind. Do you think it's the word mercy? Do you think that when when people imagine us, they, they know us as a church that is quick to extend a merciful hand to hurting people? I mean, this is why the announcement that Sarah made about Care Portal is so crucially important for who we are and what we do. There are people within a mile of where we are gathered right now who are in desperate need of an act of mercy and God has placed us here to be able to reach them. It's even part of our vision here at Emmaus. We're here to declare and display the gospel. Well, what is an act of mercy but the gospel displayed? Right? After all, while we were lost Poor, blind, naked, filled with shame and disgrace, Jesus came to us. He reached out to us, extending a hand of mercy to us in our time of need. We couldn't fix ourselves. We we couldn't pull ourselves together. And yet he found us. He showed up in our life. And he offered to us refreshment. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. Turn to me. Look to me. Abide with me. Collapse into my kind arms so that times of refreshment may come to you. What a merciful invitation that is. That is music to the ear of a sinner. Because one thing it shows us is that Jesus is not embarrassed to be seen with the likes of us. He's not ashamed to rub shoulders with needy, messed up people. During his earthly ministry, someone asked him, Jesus, 
Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Don't you know what kind of people you're mixed up with? I mean, these are the dregs of society cast aside because they're unwanted, unclean, unwashed. Jesus, you're a holy man. Why would you ever want to associate yourself with people like that? And Jesus answers in the most merciful fashion. I came to seek, save, lost. And now that he has sought us, and now that he has saved us, the book of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus, our great prophet, priest, and king, is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. He is not ashamed to be seen with us by his side. So if you really think about it, the gospel is the single greatest act of mercy ever performed. Because in the gospel, what has happened is the God of heaven and earth has come down to us and he has put his arm around our shoulder and he tells us, you're going to be okay. I'm with you. I'm here. And I'm not going to leave. And if that's what he's done for sinners like us, how could we not want to do that for others? Right? How could we be anything other than like Onesiphorus who showed up and loved people and served them and refreshed those in need? I mean, I want to be that for other people, don't you? Isn't that what you want to be known for? Isn't that what you want for your own life? Sadly, history tells us that the church it's not always been that way. It hasn't always been a place where hurting people can find mercy. Where sinners can find good news. And here at Emmaus, we are fully aware of that. We fully recognize that, which is why we are constantly returning to the truth of the gospel again and again. I mean, if we are ever to be known for our mercy, it won't be because we're such great people. No, it will be owing to the fact that we have been entrusted with a great gospel. Everything that we do as a church must point back to the news that Jesus lived a perfect life without stain or trace of sin, and he died a death that he did not deserve so that we may have a life that we could never deserve. We need to hear this good news over and over again, friends, because in and of ourselves, we are not merciful. We just aren't. We tend to look at the needs of others, their pain and their problems, and we, we tend to think, well, it's probably your fault. I mean, what goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. If you didn't make such poor decisions, maybe your, maybe your life wouldn't be such a disaster, man. Come on, everybody knows that. I don't know about you, but over the years I've found that that attitude can be so prevalent inside of me. I'll confess, I know how to talk a good game. I can say all the right things about mercy and compassion, but there is something inside of me that bends towards self-righteousness and severity. And when my heart gets hard like that, 
And that tendency to look down on others rears its ugly head within me. I need the gospel to come and to interrupt me mid-thought and to shake my shoulders and tell me, that's you. Right? That, that's who you are. Like if, if God were to repay me according to my decisions, I would be a goner. He has every right to condemn me. He has every right to cast me into outer darkness. But the gospel tells me that's not what he did. He did not deal with me according to my sin. He did not repay me according to my iniquities. But instead, according to his steadfast love, what has he promised to me? He has promised a merciful reward in Christ. Because of that merciful reward, I will one day see him face to face. He will place a crown of righteousness upon my undeserving head. And he will look me in the eye and he will tell me, now enter into my joy. And when we are called to walk through suffering in this life, that promise is enough. It is enough to sustain us. Because well, everything we need is found in the gospel. And if that's the truth, if that's the case, we can suffer boldly in the name of our merciful Savior. Church, would you pray with me? Lord, today by your spirit, we ask you to wash over us with mercy and grace as we come to you in desperate need of his powerful working. Let us never forget that the only reason we're not lost forever is because you are a God who is rich in mercy. In fact, the, the worst things about us are the very things that make you move toward us in love. Thank you for that, Lord. We praise you for it from the bottom of our hearts and, and we rejoice in your gospel. We rejoice so much that if you were to call us to suffer for your sake, we would be willing. We would be willing, just like Paul, because we know whom we have believed. We know that the God we believe in is a, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's why we're here this morning. So we pray all these things in the mighty, merciful name of Jesus. Amen. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, we remember his mercy. There is bread here waiting for us at the table. And we are meant to look at that bread. We're meant to, to take it into our hands and place it in our mouths so that we might remember the mercy that saved us. But we were dead in our sin. The body of Jesus was broken for us because of the richness of God's mercy. And then there's the cup, which we drink down. And drinking it, we remember that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath entirely on our behalf. His blood was poured out for the remission of sin upon him. The miserable penalty of all our worst cho choices was laid. 
So in the cup, we're prompted once more to remember God's mercy revealed to us in the wounds of Jesus on the cross. And listen, if you're here today and you are not a Christian, we hope and we pray that you will take a good long look at the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. We want to plead with you today to receive his mercy. He is extending his hand to you this morning. So will you respond by believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord? We also ask that if you're not a Christian, you would not come to this table with us today. We don't say that to be unkind or inhospitable. We just say it because what you need is found in Jesus, not at this table. To you, this is just bread and juice from Christ chopper. It doesn't mean anything. It is faith in our merciful God that makes this meal mean something. So what we want for you is not this meal. What we want for you is the Jesus to which this meal points. For those who are going to come to the table, we would ask that you would come in an orderly fashion. Begin here in the front and move row by row to the back of the room. We'll come down the aisle here around the front, and uh, these kind servants will uh, offer the meal to you. Church, would you come to the feast? Your Jesus is waiting.